This is Great Dane Nation, presented by Vegas Insider. I'm your host, Morton Anderson. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, the legendary, affable, ever-present Tommy Freeze Pops. Tommy, what do you have for me this week? Morton, thanks as always for having me. And week three of the NFL regular season is upon us. And we have one of your all-time favorite head coaches joining us on the podcast, a Super Bowl champion, a wine connoisseur, the great Dick Vermeil joins us on the show. Then we'll get into Morton's Fast Five, where we'll give our picks for the five biggest matchups of the NFL weekend. And finally, we'll close things out with Morton's game winner. But before we get into all of that, let's get to the opening kick. Morton Anderson kicks off. And it's a beauty through the end zone. And Morton Anderson has been doing that with regularity this season and throughout his illustrious career. Shaboy! So if I'm Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs sitting in Arrowhead Stadium right now, getting ready to practice and watch tape, am I worried? Am I worried that the Baltimore Ravens and Lamar Jackson will unseat us from the AFC title who will be hoisting the afc trophy when it's all said and done as it looks to me right now it's the baltimore ravens why do i say that what am i basing this crazy thinking on well did you watch the game did you watch the kansas city chiefs play the baltimore ravens did you see a head coach at the end who trusted lamar jackson and you can, if you're good at reading lips, and I think we all saw it, do you want to go for it when it was third and short and a first down ices the game, knowing that Lamar Jackson has the tools, the wheels, the skill set to get two, three yards? What did Harbaugh say? Did he say punt? No, he did not. He looked at Lamar Jackson and said, do you want to go for this? And Lamar said, what? You betcha, I wanna go for this. What did Harbaugh say? Let's go for it, let's go. And the relief on his face after the game was iced, after a, uh, you can't even call the quarterback sneak, it was basically just a keeper by Lamar Jackson. He used his skill set to get three, four yards into the game, take took a knee and the camera went to Harbaugh and the really he was jumping up and down I think he even like straddled an offensive lineman and hugged him it was it was television gold but my point is this Lamar Jackson earned that he took the team on his back and showed why he should be the MVP of the league right now he doesn't have the the, the same supporting cast that Mahomes does. And that's why I say Lamar Jackson right now is the MVP of the league. I think it's completely fair by you to give Lamar Jackson that award through two weeks here. I think it's completely fair by you to think that the Ravens could win the AFC right now because they have that guy at quarterback and they have a great defense, man. One of the best defenses in the NFL. And I know they're dealing with a lot of injuries in their backfield. I know Marcus Peters is out for the year, but man, 
Baltimore is loaded. That's a program that just knows how to win. John Harbaugh is a great coach. Lamar Jackson is a great leader. He might not have the arm that a Mahomes has or a Herbert or any of these other elite quarterbacks, but he has generational speed. Yeah, he does. He has gen- He has another gear that I have not seen from anybody else. He has the it factor. He really does. When you think a play is dead, going nowhere, Lamar Jackson has the ability to create something, make something out of it. And he doesn't run out of bounds. He's he's willing, and that worries me a little bit because you want to keep the guy healthy. But he's big. This is a big, big man who understands when to dive down, how to run, how to evade defenders. Man, we saw it. I mean, he's, he, he's able, his ability in full stride to stab and change direction and make defenders miss. I just have never seen it. Michael Vick obviously had a little bit of it, but Michael Vick was a lot smaller, a lot smaller than Lamar Jackson. Lamar has the advantage of the height. I think Vick was barely six feet tall. So Lamar's taller, heavier, and dare I say faster? It's it's scary to think. I mean, Michael was fast, but man, he's he, he's fun to watch. I'm going to be watching every Baltimore Ravens game. Why? Because I want to watch him. It's must-see TV. It really is. I personally haven't seen a guy like him since Michael Vick, and, and I would venture to guess neither have you. And I'm going to be tuned into every Lamar Jackson game this season as well. So, so fun. And those matchups with the Chiefs are going to be fun for years to come for that Lamar versus Mahomes matchup, man. Yeah, man, the league's in great shape because they got two young stars in Mahomes and Jackson and now Herbert. Other guys are coming along. The GOAT is still playing good ball in Tampa and Rodgers. Hmm, looked pretty good against Detroit on Monday night football. All in all, the league's in great shape. You're going to get Trevor Lawrence developing down in Jacksonville. And when he gets a supporting cast, he's going to be fun to watch as well. So, uh, man, the league is really, so many great games. You know, I watched a ton of football, and I'm sure you did too. And just a ton of games. But my favorite games was that Chiefs-Ravens game. That was fantastic. It was everything I loved about football. All right, let's get to that conversation with Dick Vermeil. All right, man, let's kick it. If you measure a man by the size of his heart, his compassion and love for others, then Dick Vermeil is a superstar. Through a rich professional and personal life, he's made us all better, more passionate, richer. I was lucky to play for Coach V for two years. It was special and although my departure was painful, I left a better human. I always enjoy my time spent with Dick Vermeil. We usually talk mostly about wine, and I think that's exactly why well, I want to start today with you, Coach. Welcome to Great Day Nation, and uh, you and I and the common passion of wine. That's really where we ought to start our conversation, I think. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that, and of course, we shared a few glasses. And Everywhere I go, people ask me about the comment I made about Bryant Family Vineyard. I'm going to visit with him Tuesday at 3 o'clock. He's a very sick man today. Uh-huh. But anyway, I'm visiting with him on a Tuesday at 3 o'clock. 
So I think for our listeners, uh, to get them up to speed, we need to tell the story of a cold November, December afternoon in Arrowhead Stadium, and we were playing the Raiders, and the game was tied. It was back and forth, and we had an opportunity at the end to uh, to win it on a, I don't know, 35-yard field goal. I think it might have been from the right hash, something like that. And um, I'll let you take it from there. The Raiders called timeout, and then what happened, Coach? <laughs> well, you were jogging out, and I yelled back, hey, Martin, come here. And I said, you make this thing. I'll give you a bottle of my Bryant family vineyard, which is a $500 bottle of wine today and very hard to get, believe it or not. And you smiled and went out there and popped that thing through. We win the game. The first question asked me at the press conference, what did you say to Morton Anderson? Now they're expecting me to say some technical thing. No, I'm not that smart. I said, Morton, you make this thing. I'll give you a bottle of my Brian family. And they went crazy. They all laughed about it. Well, the next day we get a call from the NFL office. That's not legal. You can't do that. So I had to wait the Thursday to get it to you. <laughs> and Don I Bryant, never, Coach, I never got this bottle. Yes, you did. And Don <laughs> Bryant calls me. That from St. Louis, he says, for me, I have never gotten that kind of publicity before. Thank you very much. My phone's ringing off the hook. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, it was it was a uh, it was disarming in some way. I, I didn't feel nervous. You always uh, focused on the task at hand. But it, it threw me for a little bit of a loop when you called me over. I think we kind of met halfway out there between the sideline and the spot where I was kicking. Because, you know, I go into my pre-kick routine. I have my own little thing I do before the kick. But it kind of flipped me out, you know. It completely, um, you know, disarmed me in some way and uh, relaxed me. Not that I wasn't necessarily that geeked up about it. It was a makeable field goal, but still, you know, the situation was not uh, automatic. That's no, you got to you got to make nothing's <clears throat> automatic. So I thought that was a really that was a fun thing to share with you. And I know we we got some mileage out of it. Bryant Family Vineyards got some mileage out of it, and and really that's. I love for wine, and of course, with your history, and I want to touch on that, obviously, with your great-grandfather, your grandfather, and the lineage of Vermeils and Jean-Louis Vermeil and so forth, and coming over from the old country and bringing the tradition of winemaking over here. It was in your blood from the start, was it not, Coach? No question. Yeah, my great-grandfather on the Italian side brought his, you know, was very successful in San Francisco. Yeah. And being successful in San Francisco allowed him the income to go up into the Napa Valley and search for properties because it reminded him of Tuscany where he was born and raised. And he bought 21 different properties over the period of his life living in the States. The one of them, which I was born in, it's still there. It's now a doctor's outpatient home. And I went in there the other day to talk with the receptionist and she's sitting in the doorway of the bedroom I was born in. And I said, you know, to this lady, you know, you're sitting in the bedroom I was born in almost 85 years ago. And she couldn't believe it. But anyway, that is- that's the story. Then my grandfather, Vermeil, would take the properties uh, that he owned that had the vineyard, which we still get our grapes from, the Freddie Annie Vineyard. He owned a portion of it a long time ago. My grandfather now, and the next generation up, Vermeil would make Vermeil wines with those grapes which were now we turned into a hobby in 1999 in 2008, my friends and I turned it into a business. And right now we're making the playoffs for the first time in 13 years. <laughs> we're finally in the black. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. And, and I am helping you. I hope. Oh, no just, question. You're just a right. little, just a little bit. I, I love your wines, uh, the Rosedale block, the picket fence. Um, well, there's so many and uh, the Zen, of course, some white wines as well. 
you've done a great job, and that wine has come a long ways. You know, it yes, really it has. has. It really has improved tremendously. So much more, so many more levels and depth. And this is not a wine podcast, obviously, but I do want to give you props for being uh, patient and being uh, stubborn about it, because that's well, you know, what it takes. I, yeah, you know, and I'm no wine expert, but I know what tastes good to me. You know, and I grew up on homemade Vermeil family wines, and uh, we kept improving the product. It started out as hobby with friends I grew up with in the Napa Valley. And we, my friends turned it into a business in 2008. And since then, Thomas Brown has entered in 2014, who, to me, I call him the Bill Belichick of the Napa Valley. He's, he's one, number one, number two, number three winemaker in the country in California anyway. And he brought in Andy Jones to be our winemaker. And we just upgraded the process. We now are making our wines at Mending Wall Winery on the Silverado Trail, which Thomas Brown owns part of it. And we were there uh, yesterday afternoon watching them work on the Rosedale block as it was uh, crushed and, and put in the tanks and that stuff. And uh, Sunday, we're holding our wine club event there awesome. on Sunday. But anyway, yeah, you know, our goal is just make it special. It's now getting between 93 and 96 grades, uh, which is, you know, it's outstanding wines. And people are paying a lot more for range of wines not evaluated or graded as high. Now, you got to be careful chasing grades too. But anyway, we're very pleased and proud of the process right now. I bought a 16 liter bottle from you guys. Uh, yeah, it's a Super Bowl limited edition that yeah, will be drunk go. this Thanksgiving uh, yeah. with family and friends. And yeah. I look forward to, uh, I love the large format bottles. But you know, I, I want to say something about your coaching style and what I, what resonated with me in Kansas City for those two years. And having talked to you for, for a long time and been friends with you, colleagues with you, um, I think you did a really good job of delegating and trusting people that were really good at their job and allowing them the freedom to operate without constantly meddling. And not, it may not have been that in the early years in Philly. That might have been a different. And yeah, I'll let you. Yeah, I'll let you. I'll let you talk. But it's it's kind of the same way in your wine business. It seems like you've turned it over to people who really know what they're doing. And then listen, you. We understand you're the bling bling out front, right? And that's that's important to have. But is that accurate to make that uh, sort of analogy between your football coaching style and also the wine business? Yeah, that's very true, Mort. You know, when I was in UCLA as the head, well, I'm in high school, junior college and college. I was the head coach, my own offensive coordinator, coached my own quarterbacks, ran the own place. Same with Philadelphia for seven years. Yeah. Then going into broadcasting for 14, I knew I could not use the same process. So then I had offensive coordinators and I always had a defensive coordinator and some of the best. Marion Campbell in Philadelphia was just outstanding. Bud Carson came with me to the Rams, and then Peter Junta and John Bundy took that over when Bud Carson retired. And, but I, I knew I couldn't do it the same way. So I became a better delegator and, in some instances, a designator. And the difference is when you delegate, you also work within that process. When you designate, you just, hey, go do this. Yes. Now, my job, I felt, was to support that person in charge with everything that he needed to be as good as he had the ability to be you know, develop a discipline program or a work ethic within the program, within the entire building and put a player and a coach in a position for them to be the best they can be and, yes. and build relationships within that organization yeah. and then let's work together and get it done. You know, and as I sit here and look at you, I often think at this time that uh, you remember on Saturday mornings, I used to give a profile of the team captain for the game. Yes. And the first time I did it with you, 
the meeting was all over and one and I'm uh, the kids are walking out one rookie stopped and said coach do you know I wasn't born before we <laughs> went to this league <laughs> and he well call you Mr. Anderson oh I know call you Mr. Anderson. Yeah, I didn't like that. And, and you know, it was telling, and it was very poignant for me to be in a locker room with guys that weren't born when I started out in New Orleans in 82. And it uh, was almost surreal in a way. But yeah. it was also very unique and cool. And, you know, you caught me at my tail end of my career. I didn't have the power I had back in the 80s. Oh. Uh, and I had some injured problems. So, you know, just to my earlier point in the intro, the departure was painful, but it was probably needed. You probably you made a you you made a good choice. Well, you made a good choice. You know, uh, Lawrence Tynes was the right person for that time, and you know, heck, I still went and played another three years. So, yeah, yeah. you know, I always felt it was my responsibility to be as uh, honest as I could be with what the players I worked with, the coaches I worked with, and the ownership. And I had responsibilities to do my job. And it started with the ownership down to the president and to the GM, who was both Carl Peterson had both responsibilities. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, so regardless of my relationship with the player, I had to do what was right for the organization. Yeah. And, uh, and more often than not, the entire staff was like a, a board of directors. We decided a lot of things together. And there were times I overruled them. And there were times I made mistakes in my overruling process. Sure. But that's how we operated. Yeah. And uh, some of the finest relationships I have are with players I let go. Yeah. But they knew I cared about them. They knew yeah. we cared about them. And deep down in, they knew it was time. Yeah. And if I thought they could still play, I would work hard to get them a job on another team, which many times happened. Yeah, well, I still, like I said, still got three years. And, and that was including 20 months unemployed in a park before I ended up in, in Atlanta. So yeah. I, I still yeah. had a little bit left in the tank. Well, you know who loved you more than anybody other than your wife and children was Frank Gant Sr. Yeah. Well, you know, and he he held, you know, I'll get to Frank Gant Sr. because he was a uh, a life-changing person in my life yeah, and in many people's lives. He was direct. He was uncompromising. He was unapologetic. And he was so competent. He was the best. Now, yeah, I have affinity for special teams coaches, and maybe that's one of the reasons I love you so much, because you and Marv Levy, actually, were the two first special teams coaches in the National Football League. Right. You, Marv, uh, my job when I went to UCLA as the offensive coordinator, Marv, Marv took my job. In, I was there in 1969 when I left to go to the UCLA for being this offensive coordinator. Marv took my job, and it really bonded us together because we became good friends all through our careers. Yeah, that's an amazing uh, you know piece of research that I found out, and I think that's why you always felt and uh, and you always emphasized the kicking game. You knew it was that's just not a, an afterthought, but it was literally a third phase no uh, question. Of, of the football team, and that you needed uh, the components, the elements there to to make it powerful. And you always had good kickers. You had good return guys. We had Dante Hall. We we were we were a force to be reckoned with. We scored more points in Kansas City. You did the same in St. Louis, but before we get to to those runs, I need to to talk to you a little bit because you were a West Coast guy, and then you go to the East Coast. You end up in Philadelphia the early years. You were a different guy then, right, Coach? Right. I mean, it, you were – and I saw the movie with, with Vince Papal, Invincible, and uh, I always had this feeling, and the same with Kurt Warner and Vince and so forth, you always liked the underdog. 
Oh, you I did. Just, yeah, I really you did. embraced him and you wanted to give him a shot and you wanted to see him succeed. Can you talk to me about the early days, with, not only with Vince, but the culture back then and how you changed, how you started out there intense, slept at the office five days a week. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but no, you're right. You really burned yourself out to the point where you, you ended up retiring. So take me through the Philly years. Take me through the Vince Papal story. I know it's been told a lot, but uh, just those early years as, as a pro coach. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, Morton, I left UCLA after we beat Ohio State in the Rose Bowl. It's still considered the number one upset in the history of the Rose Bowl, which put me in the Rose Bowl Hall of Fame. Okay. But anyway, I leave there and I have good players. I have All-American quarterback. I have All-American guards. You know, I have players. Now I come to Philadelphia. They've been losing forever. They have no first, second, or third round pick the first year. No first, second round or third round pick the second year. No first and second to third years. So I figure, first off, I'm never going to, and we're not going to outsmart anybody. The way we can do it is outwork everybody and develop our own players. Yeah. So we, we just doubled everything I had learned working in pro football with uh, George Allen, Tommy Prothrow, and Chuck Knox. We just doubled everything we did in training camp. Uh, and everything. And we gradually developed a roster of players that didn't know at the time they were, had the ability to be as good as they end up being. And our, our theme was hard work is not a form of punishment. It's a solution. And you know that in your own career. Sure. The harder you work, the better you get. And there's no correlation in anything you do between working less and getting better. It just doesn't exist. And I think sometimes the reason we have more injuries in the NFL today, serious injuries, is players aren't worked and prepared for the contact on Sunday. Mm. But anyway, that was my approach, and that's what we did. And we had 12 players off that original roster that we took over that went to the Super Bowl five years later, 12 guys. And I can give you an example. Regardless of how intense and long the practices were, my left tackle, my center, and my right guard, Stan Walters, Guy Morris, and Jerry Sizemore, both tackles played in the Pro Bowl two or three times apiece. They played seven years with us, and between the three of them, they failed to start three games. <laughs> Last year, the Philadelphia Eagle offensive line never played together once. You know, they were hurt right. all year. So I'd like to believe, yes, it was tough on them. I'd like to believe we developed a spree de corps and a camaraderie that didn't exist on a lot of teams because we yes. work the guy out and cut him and find somebody better. I didn't want to build a football team that way. There wasn't free agency, and we didn't have the draft choices. So I hired coaches that could help a player get better. And uh, so and that's the approach we took. But to do that, you had to stay on the field longer. And so we never failed in three teams we coached. We never failed to not have an all-pro left tackle. And one of them became a Hall of Famer in Orlando Pace. Never failed to have an all-pro quarterback. And one of them became a Hall of Famer. And you played with Trent, who played in the Pro Bowl twice. Yes. Dorsey with NFC Player of the Year once. Polish well, rifle. So we, we, I never failed to have a kick returner make the pro football. We never failed to have a running back make the pro football. And they weren't all Marshall Falks. Okay. But if you work somebody intelligently and deliberately to help them individually improve their skills, it's amazing how much they gain confidence in their own performance. And also what happens, Morton, hard work becomes important to them. They start appreciating what they have gone through to be what they are today. And it really, I think it, 
it positively influences the way they think and everything in life. You know, and I can't tell you, I stay in touch with my guys and uh, I hear from them all the time. And 16, 17 of them live in Philadelphia where we live. Sure. And we share wonderful experiences. I share hospital experiences with them now. And some of them are struggling a little bit, you know, b- because of the punishment they took through 10, 12, 13 years of playing in the league. And, and I also think the NFL could do a hell of a lot jo- better job in, in respecting these guys financially. Yeah, that's a conversation for another day, Coach. I, uh, but I agree, we we need some equality there. There are some pre guys that played back in the day who just didn't make the money. Who today absolutely are having a hard time. So we we need to do a better job there. So Vince Papal comes. You have open tryouts. I think it's an interesting story just to 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 briefly uh, touch on. We had about 150 guys show up to this open tryout on a Saturday. And I mean, they were all shapes and all sizes, believe me, from kickers to roly-poly guys to some talented guys, some guys that played high school ball, college ball, or semi-pro ball. And we signed Vince Papali out of it. Here's an Italian kid who was the fastest guy in camp. I think he ran four or five at that time with a stopwatch. Okay. And that was impressive. And he did not play college football. St. Joe, he was a track man. You know, and he was a good track athlete. And you could see that in his running skills. We didn't have any draft choices. And we were going to have a long training camp. We started training camp July 3rd. And I don't think we ever took the pads off. That was just the way it was in those days. But anyway, he made the team. And, uh, uh, you know, he was a South Philadelphia kid. The stadium's in South Philadelphia. And he became a symbol. When he went jogged on the field on a punt coverage team, they cheered him, you know, <laughs> we weren't making any first downs, so they didn't have anything to cheer about. But anyway, that last, and he got hurt. He, I think he lasted three years. I became very good friends with him and his family. And he has a son that I think can play in the league, but he can't get a good chance. He's been playing in these other spring and summer leagues and plays well. But anyway, uh, that's the story. The movie over the years, from what I was told, grossed over $800 million. Unbelievable. Now, I'll add on to that story. Two days ago, I watched a movie of the new movie on Kurt Warner that's going to come out December 25th, Christmas Day. It's unedited. It was, but they brought it up to show it to me. And I invited guests to come to where the only ones in the theater. It's outstanding. It's Underdog a, is the name of it. Yeah, American Underdog. Don't it was start. outstanding. And it's a true story. And there were some things they manufacture within the football world. They left out his first year and went right into his second year and made it look like it was first year. But the story is true. And it it was very touching, very, very well done. And I'm looking forward to the reception it's going to get when the whole world gets to see it. But that's another papali. But you're right. I really love the free agent kid, you know, London Fletcher. Nobody wanted London Fletcher. We signed him. He played 16 years without missing a game. He's now a Hall of Fame candidate, and he's deserving. Morton, I've seen Hall of Fame kickers and you. I've seen all of my Hall of Fame tackles, guards, and I have 15 different players I've been involved with here in the Hall of Fame, 10 of them as a head coach. So I know what they look like. I know what they look like. When I say this guy's a Hall of Famer, I think I have some credibility and that should be listened to. But you know and I know that's a process. That's yeah. a process and one that we all respect. Probably took you too long to get in there, you know. Well, it took you too long, and and since we're on the subject, congratulations, you're a finalist. You. We got to get eighty percent in January. I think we will, and uh, 
let me just ask you uh, then right up. It's it's a tough, you know, hey, it's, it's a question that's heavy, but what is it going to mean for you when, I'm going to say when, <laughs> yeah. I think it's a foregone conclusion when you put on that gold jacket. Well, I, I think it's an unbelievable reflection of everybody I've surrounded myself with. You know, I've never tried to make it all about me. I've really, really enjoyed the coaches that I've had the opportunity to work with, you know, just out. And I've learned so much from each one of them. You know, I came up as a high school coach and I can remember Morton being very nervous, shaking hands with Tom Landry and Don Shula because I never felt, oh, my God. You know, I looked at I, I'm watching them coach on Sunday and I'm coaching Hillsdale High School or Napa JC, you know, yeah. and all of a sudden I'm on the field with those guys. I, I never really felt comfortable. I was sort of overwhelmed in their presence. And, uh, and, and now I find myself going on to a team possibility wise anyway, uh, yeah, the, yeah. same stage with those guys. And it's uh, humbling and uh, very, I'm very grateful to all the coaches and the players that put me in this category. You now, and hopefully I've made enough contribution to earn the right I can oh, think yeah. of some guys I think belong in there before I do, you know. No, you belong. And I think maybe having Tom Flores go in, you know, this year, mm-hmm. you can discuss who goes in first, whatever. But that helped you. Well, that I helped know, clear, the, clear the way. It's, yeah. it's, it's like that. There's a, there's a gauntlet. Yeah. Well, there's a process. The process yeah. has changed. Yeah. As you know, what took you so long was that now they have player category, contributor category, and a coach category. And that's only been the last two years, the mm-hmm. contributor and coach category. They've always mm-hmm. been considered in competition with the player. So that makes it tough on the contributor category and the coach category. Now they're in separate categories. And yeah. I found out I was in the hunt in the first time they used the process. And Bill Cower and Jimmy Johnson went in, very deserving people. But I never really felt I was in the hunt until someone told me at that time my name was discussed within the meetings. And I said, well, maybe sometime I might get in. And then Carl Peterson took charge of uh, being an advocate and organizing people. And, yep. uh, you know, I'm very, you know, I had a bunch of coaches stepped up. Andy Reid, you know, and these guys uh, stepped up. Uh, Bill Cower was verbal at the Hall of Fame meetings this year in Canton. And, yeah. you, know, you know, Tony Dungy, these kind of guys, Jeff Fisher stepped up and Bill Belichick were backing me. As a candidate, not that it didn't back someone else as well, but that uh, that was, you know, it was a. am walking out of the airport, get, just getting off the airplane and my phone rings and it's Dave Baker says, Dave Baker, Dave Baker, Coach Ramil, Dave Baker here. Uh, and uh, I'm not calling you to buy a case of wine. That's what he says. To me. I'm letting you know that you just won the vote for the coach go- nomination going into the Hall of Fame. And I said, my think our first comments were, oh, my God, I don't know if I deserve this. And I, so I lean back against the wall and I tell Carol what's happening and she screams, well, it's about time. <laughs> and well, it is. Well about- enough, yeah. And you know her well enough to know that. Oh, absolutely. This is great. And then great. I started thinking and it's, it started, it really sort of was overwhelming. It really was. And I, and I go back to the term grateful, yeah. you know, if I don't have Morton Anderson, we don't beat Raiders that day. You know, if I don't have Trent Green developed from being, a guy that only played 13 games in six or seven years in his career to a Pro Bowl quarterback or mm. to Kurt Warner coming from the Arena League to a Hall of Famer. If I don't have these kind of people and the kind of coaches I had, I'm not there. Or, or, Orlando Pace. 
Orlando? No, a Marshall Falk. Will, Will Shields? Yeah, a Mike Martz. The contribution I mean, he and Frank Gann Sr. And you yeah. mentioned it. Frank Gann Sr. was the finest combination, complete package of any coach on any level I ever worked with. He, he was unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, I had the best year with him in 95. We we were together in Atlanta when I got released. I just, over 50 yards for him. <laughs> at eight, eight that year. Three in and one that game. That was unheard of in those days. That it was, was unheard of. He got me to another level. We no question. To use his vernacular, we were speaking the same language. Yeah. And the you know, success favors the exceptionally prepared, which he no question. He had so many great sayings, but oh, they were yeah. sayings that were rooted in reality and in truth and experience. He made a lot of references to and the military history. and history, correct. Yeah. You know, especially like military history. He oh, was yeah. As you know, and we'll tell the listeners this, on Saturday night before the games, Frank Gantz would speak. Yeah. And no he would problem. get up and everybody would be, oh, man, what are we – are we going to talk about the SAS uh, yeah. today? Are we going to talk about the Navy SEALs? Are we going to talk about Second World War and the Battle of the Bulge and, and General Patton? And I left yesterday. And <laughs> what, what is it going to be? And he was phenomenal – in his ability to connect, if you will, those two worlds, and, the high performance business. Yeah, and quickly earn the respect of everybody in the room. Now, it, when I was coaching the Rams, we had offensive linemen would go to his meetings that weren't on special teams in these specific. I, I know. Saturday before we played the Minnesota Vikings in 1999 in our first playoff game, I took John Madden into Frank Gann's special teams meeting. Now, John Madden and I go all the way back to California history and good friends. So he comes out of that meeting. You know what he says to me? That's the finest meeting I've ever been in. Can I bring a camera crew in if you win this one next Saturday? I says, no way. Frank wouldn't allow it, nor would I. Because, you know, most people would think it's a uh, movie set or something. Or someone wrote the the script. You know, he was so intelligent. and He was able to, and his pauses, pregnant pauses, uh, the way he spoke, public speaking, and you've had a lot of experience in that, and uh, you're a great public speaker, but he was... was How about if somebody yawned in this meeting? Oh, how about... And (laughs) if you didn't duck, you'd If you didn't duck... (laughs) I'm sitting in the back of the room one time, and two rookies come walking in his meeting about three minutes late. I swear, those kids, I mean, <laughs> and it was never uh, insulting. It was demanding conversation between Mr. Gans, okay, and two young rookies. They were almost crying by the time they actually sat down in their chairs. He and did not discriminate. He never discriminated against, no. you know, he would be consistent with everybody. Tough yeah. love, if all, you will. From the all pro to the yeah. guy that's a marginal player, they were all. And the, the play, uh, Ray Agnew many times would say to me, you know, Ray Agnew is now the assistant GM at Detroit. Coach, I just loved his meetings. It got me great. Oh, <laughs> they were the best. I, yeah. I was on a roll in 95, I remember, and I think I was like 24 in a row. And, you know, everything's going great. And then I had a, a hiccup, you know, I missed a kick and, oh man, but I missed a kick that was makeable that he knew I was capable of taking. Right. But I didn't make it for whatever reason. <laughs> he didn't say, he kind of looked at me before the meeting and I knew, oh man, here it comes. And he let me have it. <laughs> and everybody in the room's going, 
what the heck? What's going on here? The dude just had 24 in a row. <laughs> he didn't care. He demanded the highest level of performance, uncompromising performance yeah. and preparation. And if if you screwed up and you were an all pro or a rookie, like to your point, yeah. it didn't matter. Didn't matter. Now, it, and I, I'll yeah. tell you, I'll tell you something I haven't told many people. 1999, I win the world championship. And I say, you know, having an opportunity to go out as a world championship football coach, start, especially starting where I started from, is an unbelievable privilege. And to be able to go home and be with your family and your grandkids are being born and being raised and all that, it says, I'll go home. So I tell the staff that. The staff all leaves the room. Ten minutes later, Frank comes into my office. He says, I want to talk with you. And he sits down in front of me. He gives me <laughs> as if I missed three field goals in a row. <laughs> and, you know, and I, I, I love this guy. And you and I both spoke at his funeral service, you know, and I've stayed in touch with Barman. I talked to Frank Jr., just last week, you know, okay. but anyway, uh, just a great human being and positively touched me as he would touch a player. You mentioned 1999 coach. Why did you retire after the Super Bowl victory? You had a team that could repeat. You had an opportunity to not that you didn't do it, especially there. You did. You built that team. And in your third year, I believe you won the Super Bowl with the Rams, St. Louis Rams. Why didn't you continue? Well, first off, I felt it was a way to go out of a profession as a winner, a world champion. I watched Tom Landry get fired. I watched a lot of good football coaches. You know, I also had a, a 1980 NFL Coach of the Year trophy. I still have it and had the names of like the last 15 guys that had received that award. Almost all of them had been fired after they received it. And I didn't want to put <laughs> myself into that category. You, right. know, you just stop and think. The last one, the head coach of Philadelphia Eagles wins a Super Bowl two years ago, and he loses his job three, you know, two and a half, three years later. It's just how the league is, you know. Thirty percent of the coaches that ever wore the title on the shirt, head coach, been fired yeah. after the first year. Yeah, so I figured the opportunity to go out as a winner, go home and be with my eleven grandkids, you know, my family. Wow. And, uh, and uh, I thought it was time. Yeah, and, you know. When I handed out the Super Bowl rings in May, I knew I made a mistake. How so? Well, I'm handing rings to guys that are going to be coming playing next year. <laughs> I know it. I know it, it, it. We put in a lot of work to get to where we were. You know, they they well, lost more games in the '90s when we took the team over than any team in football. They beat out the Jets by one loss. Okay, to be the worst team in football for seven years. So, and then to win the World Championship in three, I said, God, you know. Anyway, accept that as, as a really sure. wonderful thing and go home. And, and I did. And then uh, Carl Peterson came after me and, and talked me into going back to the Chiefs. Yeah. Which, uh, why, so did you, why did you do that? Because I knew I'd made a mistake. I had great confidence in Carl. I brought Carl with me. I kept Carl on the UCLA staff when I took the head coaching job. I brought him with me to Philadelphia. I watched him grow as administrator. I took him off the field and put him in charge of being my administrative assistant so I could always focus on football. Then I put him in charge of personnel at Philadelphia, and I watched him grow in the USFL. And, you know, he asked me to go with him in 89 when he became the president of the Chiefs and general manager, and I didn't yeah. do it. And... Uh, I knew the caliber of man that uh, Lamar Hunt was, you know, just a superhuman. And uh, so we went, and I, it was a great decision. We signed for three. We go 13-3, and three, get beat in the playoffs uh, my third year there, which was always my 
my third year was always, we won 74% of our games in the third year and never had winning seasons before the third year because of our approach was to develop the players we have and then add to it in a systematic way and it worked for us. So yeah. I go and I recognize I made a mistake and, you know, I don't go back and pout about it. And my wife and I, Carol, we don't talk about it. We're just very thankful that we had the opportunity. Plus it's the first time I really got paid. Like I tell Carl, he's the only reason he's the only reason we needed a financial planner. <laughs> Coach, I just want to put a bow on the Rams. Um, because you worked them just like you did the Philadelphia Eagles. You worked them extremely hard in the beginning. And there, years, was, and there was a little bit of a mutiny on the bounty there. Did you work them too hard? And can you yeah. can you share that confrontation with the players where they basically said, this is enough. This is too much. Can't do it. Well, it never really came down to a nose-to-nose -nose discussion. But I do know people were going up the back steps to the president. And fortunately... In the situation, they gave me total control of everything to do with football. And I didn't want to deal with all this other stuff. And I really didn't want to deal with this salary cap. You tell me who we can coach and who we can't coach and who we have to let go because of this and this, and we'll coach them. That's You do that. I'm going to focus on football and providing my assistant coaches with an atmosphere in which they can coach, provide the assistant coaches a player in the frame of mind to be coached and or to work. And that, that's what it was. And I can remember our first OTAs, the Rams in 1997. We couldn't go seven on seven. We didn't have enough people. I mean, it, it was amazing. We never had the entire, we never had a 11 on 11. We might have them the first or second day, and then they wouldn't show up the rest of the time because they didn't want to, a lot of them lived in LA because the team had moved, remember? It was a joke. But by the time we got there the third year, our biggest advocates were the guys that started there. We had nine guys off the original roster that went to the Super Bowl. Nine players that mm -hmm. went to the Super Bowl were on the roster when we took it over. But I'll tell you, today, when we get together, those guys, the first thing they talk about is how hard they work to get there. And they also really appreciated me backing off on the third year. We brought to the Chiefs the third-year approach to training camp in St. Louis Rams. We didn't go with the first and second-year approach in training camp in Kansas City. I thought the team was further along. At least Carl made me believe that. Uh, uh, the Chiefs had a hard time with skilled players. Yeah, they just they they got they had all these other guys, but the, the skilled players they had a hard time drafting. When I got there, I was shocked because I was spoiled with the, you talk about skilled players. Five of those guys will be in the Hall of Fame off that Ram offense. Four of them are already in. Torrey Holt will be next. He's been in the finals twice. So it made us all look like better coaches than probably we really were. Well, anyway, I tell you what, the Chiefs have the, the skilled players now, so let's – Yeah, let's, well, Andy Reid Andy Reed always has those skilled guys. And as soon as so, you lose the big guys that allow the skilled guys to be what they have the ability to be, then they don't look very skilled. You know? No, <laughs> that's a good point you're making there. <laughs> How special is Patrick Mahomes? Well, I, I think Patrick Mahomes is a combination of all the quarterbacks that are already in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> he he has all their attributes. What does he not have? The only thing I've said, and, you know, I've said in Patrick Mahomes' quarterback meetings with Andy Reid. I've said in the offensive coordinator meetings with Patrick Mahomes. I've said in the team meetings, and I've spoken to the team there with Andy. So I, I know I've been around that environment. And uh, I don't know what he doesn't have. Okay, if you talk about John Elway, who I always thought was as fine as there ever was, or Joe Montana, there were certain things maybe they couldn't do as well. 
you know, as, as, as the best in the whole. But you take the Hall of Fame quarterbacks and you take Patrick Mahomes. He has the attributes of all of them. So uh, I think he's going to end up being the best ever. Now, will he play as long as, as Brady? You know, but uh, he has more physical skills than Tom Brady. And if he maintains the right frame of mind, I think one day he'll be evaluated as the finest that ever played. You look at the Rams and how they built their roster now. Is it Super Bowl a bust for them? It seems like that window's closing. They got Stafford in a in a trade with Goff up in Detroit. But what, how do you see the Rams and, and, and their opportunities now? And, and what's that window like? Well, first off, they haven't made many mistakes. And I, I know Sean. I communicate with him on text messages and he drinks our Vermeer wine. And Good boy. They, Good boy. His, first year, his first year there, I'm in California visiting our daughter Nancy in Beverly Hills. And I meet with him for breakfast. Now, we spend two hours for breakfast. And I, I left there. I said, geez, it was like talking to my grandson. <laughs> Here's this 31-year-old kid sitting there. Yeah. I, picture, I said, you know me at 31 years, I could, 31 years old, I could no more be the head coach of the Los Angeles Rams than the man in the moon. And here's this kid with all this responsibility. But when I left our visit face-to-face, I was impressed. Yeah. Humble, bright, articulate as hell, uh, defined philosophy, you know, yeah. and I think strong-minded enough to, uh, regardless of his age, control the locker room, control the meeting room, uh, and maintain the respect uh, and trust that you need to have as a head football. If they don't trust you as a head coach, it's going to no be chance. It's going to be no chance. And uh, so I was very impressed. And I, I, you know, they have gambled a few times. They had a lot of money to this corner and a lot of money to this guy. Now, now that's the first time in history two teams have traded the number one picks in the draft. <laughs> you know, Stafford number one pick in the draft, and oh, yeah. here we go. And uh, Goff number one pick in the draft, and they swap quarterback. And there has to be a reason. Yeah. And so it, Sean, I think, sees other things in Stafford that he couldn't get out of golf. Okay. But Ray Agnew, who was working in personnel at the Rams all this time and played for me at the Rams is now assistant general manager at the Detroit lions and they bring him there. So it doesn't mean golf failed. I mean, he just didn't fit either personality or consistent performance or what, but I think the Rams got the best of the deal because Stafford has never, never had the supporting cast and has still played extremely well. In fact, he, you know, Barry Sanders, God bless him, his finest player ever played. He never had the supporting cast and was great anyway. And he left not being a big playoff team or a Super Bowl winner or anything else. Uh, Stanford's got a, I think Stanford has a chance to be a Super Bowl winning coach, a player rather, excuse me. Now. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I, that's the way I see that, that trade uh, playing out. Mm-hmm. We shall see. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, and we hope they, we're right. That's why we hope we're right. We, <laughs> we, uh, that's why they play the games. Yeah. You mentioned Doc Peterson's exit in Philadelphia, and I take it that you didn't like and you didn't think much about how things ended for him. I was disappointed. I think anybody that took over a team and, and, and builds it and wins a Super Bowl actually wins the game with a backup quarterback that supposedly can't play for anybody else as a starter and mm-hmm. then has a bad year last year. I think there's more to it than I know. I, I have no insight deeper than you do into the Eagles. I really don't. And and I say that sincerely, and I say that I'm not 
bitter about it. I just don't have any insight. Yeah, but I, I got to know Doug. I thought he was an exceptional game day quarterback uh, coach and play caller. Mm-hmm. And you won a world championship. Yes. Last year, uh, four of the five starting offensive linemen didn't play. The right tackle is supposed to be the best right tackle in football. The right guard is supposed to be the best right guard in football. The center is an all-pro. He played all year. The left guard starter didn't play much. The left tackle couldn't play, okay, and the guy they drafted got hurt, and he was maybe a bust. And they put a, a backup line in there with a good quarterback. He didn't have a chance. He did not have a chance. But, you know, that that is a simple solution answer. Yeah. Media today and sometimes ownership, they don't want a simple answer because they don't believe it. They don't believe it. And only time will tell. I think the Eagles will be much better this year. Why? Because all those guys are back and healthy. They're back and healthy. Now, Doug Peterson's gone. They've got a young new coach in Nick Sirianni, and hopefully he'll do the great job. But he's going to reap the reward of a healthy offensive line, at least to start the game Sunday. Let me finish here, uh, Coach, with a couple of names, and you tell me what comes to mind when I say Kurt Warner. First off, it's been determined the finest free agent signing in the history of the league. Okay. An unbelievable person, a person as a man. And, uh, You know, I always say this. I'm going back to Frank Gans Sr. They could never determine who was going to win the Medal of Honor. Okay. You don't know what they're like. They don't know what they look like. They come in different sizes and shapes in battle. Okay. Kurt Warner, to me, is the Medal of Honor winner in the NFL. There's no way you could predict what he was going to do. And when we kept him for one year as the third quarterback, he almost didn't make it then. And when he went in and played, I, I said to him one time during our our communication, you know, I said, Kurt, there's something about you I really like, and I can't wait to find out what it is. Well, he showed me what it was when Trent Green went down and he took over that. He ends up going from the scout team player of the year, the year before, to the most valuable player in the league. To me, he's a Medal of Honor winner in terms of football. It. It's just, it. and, and, and you know what he does right now? His foundation, he builds homes for children that are capable of living on their own, as long as there's someone in that home to oversee it. Like, you know, the one son that his wife had, Brenda had when they got married, was disabled. And now he's trying to help all parents that have children in the same capacity. So that's the kind of person he is. And football, you know, the first five games he started in the NFL are the finest first five games in the history of the league, starting with a quarterback that never started before. No one's ever done it before. And Mike March did a beautiful job with him, too. And Al Saunders did a great job with him. Yes. And Jim Hannafin on our offense. We had great coaching with those guys. Ron Jaworski. Ron Jaworski, tough-minded. You know, I was on the Rams staff when they drafted him. I was coaching the running backs and, and the uh, special teams for the Los Angeles Rams, Chuck Knox, when they drafted him. And I liked him then. I loved his tenacity, his toughness. I loved his ethnic background, and I thought he would really – fit in in Philadelphia. And he was really raw. And I was excited about having the opportunity to take this town. But I was coaching him myself and see if I couldn't develop him into what I thought he had the ability to be. Great human being. Trent Green. Oh, one, you know, I often say, who's your favorite player you ever been around mm-hmm. for five years? And he fits in the top five category. And I, I can't tell you who's number one, but he's in competition, as you know, just a super human being, a great guy and he stays in touch with you he calls me how you doing coach and one of the yep. first guys to contact me after he hears about me going on the play, he was in tears 
when he heard about it. And I, when he's talking to me, we're both in tears. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, just a special guy and a very fine player. And Al Saunders did a beautiful job of coaching him. And he was ready to be going. He'd been on the Redskins team for like seven years before he ever got to play in a game. He played in the game because of an injury factor. So he gets to play and plays pretty well. Played well. He signed him as a free agent off those 13 games that he played. I liked what I saw in him. Yeah. He lived, he was with the high school in St. Louis. It was a perfect fit if he was as good as we thought he could be. Yeah. And he, when he got hurt, he had thrown 31 passes in preseason games and completed 27 of them. Yeah. That says that's a special human being. That says it all. When he came to Kansas City, he was extremely effective and uh, was part of that and you know high-powered offense. Teammate. Yeah, yeah, he was a great teammate. He, he's still and he's still a great. Uh, he's a great announcer. He does a great job. Oh, he does a great job. Yeah. yeah, Marshall Falk, truly gifted, truly, truly gifted, and I'd like to believe that our program really helped him because uh, he really it took him a little while. He really bought into our work ethic. And I'll tell you, then he started practicing like he was going to play on Sunday. And I think I'd like to believe uh, we helped him become a Hall of Famer. He was on his way when we got him. You know, I became a lot smarter running back coach when players win games, not coaches. You say that a lot. It's your job as a coach to put him within a scheme and a discipline and a relationship building program that would allow him to be what he had the ability to be. And when Mike March saw all the things he could do, and he gradually started taking more advantage, I mean, he was unlimited, yeah. you know, but a truly gifted guy. And, uh, you know, I, I really admire him. Tony Gonzalez. I think Tony Gonzalez is one of the special, special athletes that I ever worked with close to a, a starting basketball player in college in a division one, you know, he's a, he was the number six player and played well. Yeah. Unbelievable hands, unbelievable ability to make the difficult catch in a crowd. So he had a great concentration and uh, a guy, you know, everybody says they hate losing. Okay. Every, I've never talked to players that boy, I really enjoy losing. They always give me this coach. I'm a winner. I hate losing. I've never seen a player react so emotionally low after a loss than Gonzalez. He was usually after a loss, the last one out of the locker room. He would sit over in his corner with a wet towel around the back of his neck and down leaning over. Sometimes part of his uniform was still on, just so upset about having lost the football game. And he, he was he was a Michael Jordan. He wanted the ball in his hands, not for selfish reasons, so he could make a contribution to winning. And I'll tell you, well, he cut, one year he caught like 107 or 117 balls for him. So, so he's a Hall of Famer, but he's also a Hall of Famer as a person. Yeah, well, you'll see him soon yeah. uh, in, yeah. in Cannes, Ohio. Speaking of underdogs, Jared Allen. Yeah. Oh, I was the reason they drafted him. I don't try to, you know, I always said, if you want credit, go to the bank. That's what I used to tell my coaches. <laughs> you coach those guys and give them credit. And uh, But it came to the fourth round pick. And I, I finally, I said, guys, listen. I had Grant Wistrom. I drafted him in the first round, and I love him. I love him today. This guy is a bigger Grant Wistrom, and he's sitting there. I, this, you know, and our defensive coaches didn't say anything. So finally, I said, and I didn't have good final say in the draft. And I said, Carl, we've got to take this guy, and we took him. I loved him. Now he he bugged our defensive coordinator a little bit because he was uh, he was immature, yes. both off the field and on the field sometimes. 
and he wasn't always as disciplined as you'd like him to be with fitting with, with the scheme, it would bug Gunther would get upset with him. But I, I, I would say, just let's make sure we don't screw him up. Let him play. And if he does make a mistake, he'll make it full speed. And a couple times a game, he'll make a mistake and make us look smart. You know, great football player. You know, great football. I have, to this day, I can't understand why the Chiefs let him go. Harold Carmichael. Oh, he, he's uh, one of my adopted black sons, okay? Of course, I've known him since 1976. And uh, I, when I got there, I couldn't believe this guy. You know, uh, everyone said, well, he wasn't real fast. He wasn't very fast the first five yards. But by the time he got the 10 yards and went on downfield with that stride, he was 4-4. Plus, he was six foot eight, And he matched his talents with his profile as a person. Loved to work. And I, I, I set a weight limit on him. I said, you get over 230 pounds, I'm going to play a tight end. And so he, he didn't want to go in there. Because on our goal line offense, he came down as a tight end and blocked well. But uh, just a great guy, you know. And I've, I've known him now since 1976. I see him a few times a year. Uh, you know, he just he's a Hall of Famer on and off the field, just like yourself. And when, when he goes, when he was there, you know, we were all there. Uh, watching him go in, I, I couldn't. I said to myself, "There isn't anybody more deserving." And everybody uses the cliche. Well, he should have gone in a long time ago. If he were playing in today's offenses, he remember he played for seven years in mine. That held him back because we were run oriented defense, special teams. But one year he averaged one year, nineteen seventy eight. He averaged nineteen point seven yards of reception. Okay, and he could catch touch. He, every seventh catch was a touchdown. If I knew about football. In 1976 through 82, what I knew coaching the Chiefs, oh my, he would have caught twice as many passes. We didn't coach, throw the ball to the defended receiver, throw it to the back. We didn't teach those things. Yeah. You know, that nobody can contest football better than he did. What other people didn't realize, he was a great quick screen runner because he was so big, the corners came up to hit him and uh, they couldn't hit him. You know, uh, really, super guy. The last guy I'm going to mention to you, he I have a little bit of commonality with him. He's he's married to a Danish girl, and of course I'm from Denmark. It's our, our favorite guard, uh, All Pro, yeah. Hall of Fame guy on and off the field. Will Will Shields, Hall of Famer. You said it. You know, uh, a, a wonderful human being. I'd say he was the most disciplined, quality, technique athlete in the offensive line I'd ever been around. You can remember our walkthroughs? Oh yeah. He would walk through with the most serious mind set in regard to his fundamental techniques and playing against the opponent he was going to play. Even in our when he was not in the huddle and he was the second guard was in his position, he would be over on the sideline walking through things, working on technique, extremely skilled, yes. intelligent player. Uh, and uh, when you see him now, he's hard to recognize, but he's about 40 or 50 pounds lighter. You know, but to, I, I saw him when we were in Missouri in Kansas City a couple months ago when we had dinner together. Uh, special guy, uh, yeah. a, a gifted offensive lineman as an athlete, as a work ethic, as intelligent, uh, as committed, a great community giver. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was, I can remember when I got there, he was a free agent. He could leave. I can remember taking he and his wife out to dinner. I almost forced him to start drinking red wine. And, uh, and, and talk about what we were going to do and how we were going to do it and how we would use him because they really, in the offense they were running, 
they really didn't take advantage of a lot of his abilities in space. He could get out there and run, and he could also change courses, and he could line up and, and, and take an a, a all-pro linebacker and deck him. And that's the best way to evaluate a true all-pro is how does he compete against another true all-pro? And he would win more than his share of those individual battles. You know, you got to spend a few years when very special. What I think set set you apart as a coach was your your um, humanity, and I, what I mean by that is you, you talked a lot and you talk a lot uh, about relationships and about building relationships, sustaining relationships, and understanding people on a personal level. And to that end, what made a huge impression when I came to Kansas City in 2002 after leaving the New York Football Giants was the culture yet that you had built there. The fact that in the off season you would take groups, like you would take the offensive line, you would take the defensive line, the the running backs, invite them to your home. You would do it during the season. The importance of of connecting on a personal level was, uh, you know, deeply rooted in you and Carol. And uh, you couldn't have done it without your wife, obviously. No, uh, so I want to thank you about. I want to thank you for for you know allowing me into that world of you know because I came from Europe very stoic kind of setup and and upbringing but through my wife and also through people I've met you know softened me over the years and uh, it made me more aware of uh, just showing your feelings and you you're really good at that mm-hmm. and uh, so to that end when, when I say Carol Vermeil you say what no equal no equal. You know, if I get in the Hall of Fame, there should be a category for coaches' wives, okay? Because she had no equal. Uh, you've been around the league. Have you ever seen a coach's wife? Unbelievable. Players like she did and coaches' wives. And uh, and, uh-huh. and she enjoyed it. And she was, she was part of a process. Yeah. But that process, process started when we were high school coaching, you know, and all those kinds of things. And I just, you know, it's, it was me. It was part of how I was raised in my family. And it's part of the relationship building program. And I, yeah. I, I felt, and Carol felt this, the, the kids got to know who we are, not just some authority telling them what to do. And, and uh, I, I can't tell you how many times I can remember Brian Waters sitting to my left one time, our big left guard. He says, coach, I never had a bottle of wine that didn't have a corkscrew. I mean, had a <laughs> <Of course>. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing is, uh, you know, you, you really, you hear the, the teammates sitting next to each other at a dinner table, the conversations they have that they don't have them in the locker room. No, they don't have them on the field. They don't have them in the meeting rooms and they get to know each other better. I just got yesterday a picture of a baby, Derek Blaylock's baby. Sure. Harold was holding up our running back dinner in the off season in Kansas city about four or four days after he came home from the hospital and he sent me a picture of yesterday. I saw oh my God. I mean, his football uniform. Okay. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. So, yeah. you know, I, I just gave, you see, I always realized that players win games, not coaches. Yeah. And it was my responsibility to help that player be the best he could possibly be. And the better I knew them or the better feeling we had for them, maybe the, we could add a, a little dimension to his potential that someone else wouldn't, and he would end up being better than he would be playing somewhere else. And that was, and, and then also enjoy working hard. 
and you did it, and you did it at the highest level. We we won a lot of games together, Coach. Yeah. And you won a lot of games and championships, and it's been a pleasure. Can't wait to see you in Canton, Ohio. Maybe we'll see each other before. Needless to say, we will have a nice glass of wine. <laughs> I appreciate you. I know you're I, one of our great customers. <laughs> well, no, I remember when I went in in the Hall of Fame in 2017, you brought me a bottle of Screaming Eagle. So I appreciate <laughs> That's right. I appreciate that. Believe me, that was uh, enjoyed with a couple of good friends. I think uh, you, know, you were there, I believe. So, I mean, we had a great time. And uh, it's going to be a party, man, in Canton, Ohio in 2022. Okay. I can't wait for it. Man. Thank you. Coach, I love you, man. And uh, be safe. Do give our best to Jennifer, okay? I sure will. Take care. See ya. Yeah, it was a great conversation with Coach V, and I can't wait to call him a Hall of Fame brother next year. 80% vote. He should have no problem getting it, uh, and he's absolutely deserving. He's an obvious choice for Ken. But, Freeze Pops, before we get into this week's Fast Five, tell our listeners where they can find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at Great Dane Nation. Follow us on Instagram at Great Dane Nation VI. And remember, make sure you check out the video version of our interview with Dick Vermeil on the Vegas Insider YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash Vegas Insider TV. You can go back and check out our previous interviews with Roger Goodell, PFT Commenter, Steve Atwater, and many more. That's youtube.com slash Vegas Insider TV. Let's get into Morton's Fast Five. This is Morton's Fast Five, where we run through the five biggest games of the weekend. We'll give you the Hall of Fame knowledge. You guys place your bets accordingly. We were slightly better in week two, finishing the weekend at two and three. That's an improvement, Morton. It's an improvement. Yes, it is. <laughs> we're, we're moving. We're trending in the right direction. That's the way to go. So, Morton, let's look ahead to week three here and start with the game of the weekend the 2-0 Buccaneers on the road at the 2-0 Rams Sunday at 425 on Fox. At the time of this recording, this game's a pick em. ESPN's Football Power Index gives the Rams a 55% chance of walking away with the victory. Morton, which big shiny team gets the W at SoFi this Sunday? Yeah, it's a fun game. It's, uh, it's a marquee game of the week. Uh, I like the Rams at home. It can't get much better uh, than this matchup in week three. Bucks have looked unstoppable. Gronk looks great in short yardage and, and in the in the end zone. The red zone looks really good, but don't sleep on the Rams, man. Stafford, how about him? Five touchdowns to one interception. Good wins over two tough defenses in Chicago and Indy. So I I like I just like Stafford. I like the home field at SoFi. And uh, the Rams have a defense that is uh, really Good Aaron Donald, the best defensive player in the league. And so I am going to, and I think it's even as you said, so I'm taking the Rams. Next up, your Saints are on the road taking on my Patriots Sunday at 1 o'clock on Fox. At the time of this recording, my Pats are three-point favorites. 
ESPN's Power Football Index gives New England a 58% chance of winning this one. Morton, I think this is the first time we've had a truly divided household on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. My Saints looked horrible. Oof. Horrible last week. As good as they looked against Green Bay, that's as bad as they looked against Carolina. I know Carolina has a good defense, but man, James Winston had no time to do anything. They were in his grill all day long. So that worries me a little bit going up to New England. You know, I got to take my Saints. I think it's a close game. Our offensive line, you know, I we're normally really solid and we look like a sieve as far as New England. Mac Jones looks good, but, but still, you know, He's not slinging the rock yet. He's not letting it loose. Maybe that's by design. I don't know. But um, Sean Payton, X-Factor still for me. I know Belichick, uh, he's missing Brady. But I got Jameis kind of rebounding a little bit. The offensive line, they're getting a chewing right now. I guarantee you Sean Payton is on them. I just can't imagine an O-line like that. A veteran offensive line for the Saints will have consecutive bad games. So I am going to grab the, uh, it's a it's a low line really. I mean, three points either way. So I'll take the Saints by three points. Next up, Packers are at San Francisco Sunday Night Football on NBC. At the time of this recording, the 49ers are three and a half point favorites. ESPN's Football Power Index gives San Francisco a 61% chance of winning this one. So did the Niners roll here or did Rodgers right the Packers ship on Monday night against the Lions? Both. <laughs> Both. Rodgers definitely righted the ship against uh, Detroit. Detroit's, I think, the youngest team in the league. I don't think they're the worst team in the league. They played well. Golf played well for a while. But Aaron Rodgers looked really good. Some crisp throws. And so, but I like I, I like the Niners in this one at home. They got weapons on offense. They got a great play call on Shanahan. Packers got to travel to the West Coast. They played Monday night, short week from them, and they got to go all the way out there. So, you know, I like San Francisco at home. Next up, Chargers are at Kansas City Sunday at 1 o'clock on CBS. At the time of this recording, the Chiefs are six and a half point favorites over their division rivals. ESPN's Football Power Index gives KC a 72.5% chance to win this game. All of the experts and the math are suggesting the Chiefs are going to roll here. But don't you think Justin Herbert is going to give them a fight here? I mean, division matchup. Yeah, it, it's always interesting when you get into the division games. Herbert has looked pretty good. Mahomes has looked good. And uh, that's also going to become one of these matchups that you want to watch, similar to Mahomes-Jackson. I like the Chiefs at home. I know the line is uh, is big, but I still like him at home. Chargers coming off a close loss to Dallas, which came a week after a close win over the football team. Chargers are going to be scrappy, I think. And they'll be in every game, but I just think the Chiefs are loaded on offense. They're just loaded. And they have had a hard time covering the big numbers all season long. Career tracker for Mahomes, 45-11 and 11 as a starter in the NFL. So I think the Chiefs will win, and I think they'll cover. Last game of this week's Fast Five, Washington is at Buffalo, Sunday at 1 o'clock on CBS. At the time of this recording, the Bills are nine-point favorites over Washington. ESPN's Football Power Index gives the Bills a 71% chance of winning this game. Is Buffalo going to blow out this scrappy Washington team? Yeah, they will. I'm jumping on the bandwagon for sure. 
and the Bills Mafia and whatever else I can jump on. They like to <laughs> jump on tables up there in pregame and at the tailgate. That that's their big tradition. The Bills Mafia crushing tables. So I think the Bills will crush uh, the Washington football team. We've talked all all year long about the football team having a great defense. They've kind of disappointed. I got to be honest with you. And the Bills are coming off a huge win against the Dolphins. They shut them out, 35 nothing. So Washington. Now I don't see them winning. I see the Bills all the way at home in front of a huge crowd, and they should cover. I know it's a huge number, but I think they cover. All right, there you go. Week three. I, I feel as though this is going to be the week where we end in the green ear, Martin. I, I predicted three and two this week. Pretty much good about it. All, yeah, I pretty much basically took all the favorites here. So I am counting on them not disappointing. I love it. All right, now it's time for Morton's game winner. Powerful, productive relationships based on powerful, productive communication. Dick Vermeil lives his life that way, and the many rich and lasting relationships he has cultivated is an eternal reminder of the wisdom of those words. I played for two years with Coach V as the head man, and the experience was indeed memorable and inspiring. What sets him apart is his human side and his consistent and unrelenting demand for everyone, everyone to work hard and play hard together. Hard work is not a punishment, it is a solution. And when you realize this, it becomes important to you. Yep, that was Dick Vermeil. And although not always popular, his method of outworking everybody else paid dividends and delivered championship results. His players loved him and invested in the process because they learned that he invested in them as players and humans. Coach V was and still is genuinely interested in players and coaches. It was a brilliant tradition in Kansas City when he invited the players and their families to his home for dinner and wine. Position by position, the team took turns throughout the off season to come and share a meal with Dick and Carol Vermeil away from football. It was a time for sharing, bonding, and developing a chemistry that would be invaluable in the fall during a long season. I believe we won a couple of games right there in his living room, laughing, telling stories, and building powerful relationships. Coach V was a bridge builder and his personal social skill set was off the chart. He developed his teams based on mutual respect and an uncompromising understanding that together is better than divided. When Dick Vermeil takes the stage in Canton, Ohio in August of 2022, as a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame's newest class, you can be assured that there will be hundreds of former players and coaches in attendance celebrating with him. He'll be the one who will thank them and be grateful for their contribution to his life. But the truth is that they are living their own Hall of Fame life because his indelible human spirit touched them. 
molded them and changed them forever. We'll see you next time. Great Dane Nation is presented by VegasInsider.com, the global leader in sports gaming information and your authority for the newest and best sports gambling podcasts. A big thanks to Dick Vermeil for joining us this week. You can check out the full video version of that interview at youtube.com slash TV. Great Dane Nation is available on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review today.